0: A nail man. to another episode of Yen A Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this, in terms of reviews, is going to be a pretty light show, because there's only one cinematic film I want to review in this particular episode, and I made up the numbers with a couple of streaming films as well. The big releases cinematically this week, Roland Emmerich's new disaster movie Moonfall and Jackass Forever, hold absolutely no interest for me, so I didn't review them. I've already seen and reviewed another one of this week's cinematic releases, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. If you want to hear my full review of that, you can go back to my Film Bath Festival special. Suffice it to say that Jessica Chastain is excellent in The Eyes of Tammy Faye and she fully deserved her Oscar nomination. I kind of think that Andrew Garfield deserved serious consideration for Best Supporting Actor as well. It's an entertaining film and on its pretty frothy terms, I think The Eyes of Tammy Faye is pretty good and it was a meh for me. So that meant that the only new cinematic film I wanted to check out was the new Mamoru Hosoda animated film, BAL. A Japanese animation loosely inspired by the story of Beauty and the Beast, set in the near future with an all-encompassing social media AI construct at its centre. So that was the only cinematic film I wanted to check out, and that left me with not a very long show, so I made the effort to catch up on some of the streaming films I wanted to check out. Two films released onto Amazon Prime, Asghar Fahadi's new film A Hero, which I did want to watch because I assumed it would get an Oscar nomination for Best International Feature, which it did not get. And also The Tender Bar, George Clooney's new film, which is also considered an Oscar contender, particularly for Ben Affleck and Best Supporting Actor, that didn't happen either. So even though I wanted to watch them for their Oscar potential, by the time I actually did watch them, I knew that neither of them had Oscar nominations. And I also made up the numbers by checking out the Erotic thriller on Netflix, Brazen, starring Alyssa Milano. Completely at the opposite end of the spectrum from the other three Oscar Beatty type films. I mean, Belle was on the list of eligible films at this year's Animated Feature Oscar, but it didn't end up getting a nomination. Although I think there was a decent chance it might have done. So, yeah, the Oscar nominations came out this week, which is another thing. Which I wanted to pay attention to. And as I usually do, I do want to react to the Oscar nominations and give my initial thoughts on the Oscars as they happen. So before I start with this week's reviews, I want to give a bit of reaction and analysis to this year's Oscar nominations, which were announced this past Tuesday. When it comes to The Oscar nomination announcements, there's always a few surprises, a few unexpected things which happen, but I don't think there was anything truly shocking this year. I think the two biggest things were firstly the fact that Denis Villeneuve did not get a nomination for Best Director this year for Dune, but Ryusuke Hamaguchi did for the Japanese film Drive My Car. And Drive My Car also got a Best Picture nomination. I'm really, really glad that the Academy is more open to accepting foreign language films into the major categories. But it does kind of spoil the surprise because there's no way that anything other than Drive My Car is going to win Best International Feature this year. Which is fine by me. I mean, it's a perfectly good film. I liked the film a lot, but I don't think it's better than Flea. And Flea did get the Triple Crown, it was nominated in International Feature, Animated Feature and Documentary Feature. And it's going to lose in all three of those categories, but I'm really glad it at least got nominated in all three categories. But the other big surprise, other than Denis Villeneuve not winning a Best Director nomination, is the fact that A Hero, Asghar Fahadi's film, did not get nominated for Best International Feature, and yet the film from Bhutan, Lunana Ayak in the Classroom, did, and I still don't know how that's eligible for this year's International Feature Oscar when Bhutan tried to submit it to the previous award ceremony, but regardless, A Hero did not get a nomination, which really, really surprised me. I mean, as you will be hearing in a minute, I don't think A Hero is Asghar Fahadi's finest work, but you still expect him to get at least a nomination. I mean, he's won it twice, for God's sake. But, yeah, that was perhaps, for me personally, the biggest shock is that Asghar Fahadi did not get a nomination for Best International Feature. A pleasing trend, which I noticed in the acting categories, is the flamboyant and the -the over-the-top Performances didn't get nominated when I saw that Bradley Cooper was among the favorites for a best supporting actor nomination for his role in Licorice Pizza. That shocked me. I mean it's a very, very small role in an excellent film, but it's a caricature it's way over the top. It's sucking the energy out of everything around it. And I just didn't think it was Oscar worthy and it didn't get a nomination, which pleased me. And also in the similar category of a very flamboyant performance in an otherwise understated film is Jared Leto in House of Gucci, which did not get nominated. And I'm pleased about that as well, because similarly, it's a cartoonish, clownish performance and I don't think it was Oscar worthy. And from the same film, Lady Gaga did not get an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, which I think I would have been more okay with Lady Gaga getting an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. I think she was very good in House of Gucci. But it was a little bit over the top, a little bit flamboyant. And I don't think it would be one of my personal nominations. So, yeah, the Academy did shy away from the. Demonstrative acting performances, which they on occasion have gone for. There were some disappointments in the acting categories. It really, really disappoints me that Ruth Nagger did not get a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Passing. I think that's not entirely surprising, but disappointing. And in the same category, Judy Dench getting a nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Belfast rather. Than Katrina Balf. That one disappointed me. If either actress in Belfast was going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I think it should have been Katrina Balf. I think the name recognition, the name value of Judy Dench helped her get the Oscar nomination over Katrina Balf, who I'm guessing many Academy members have never heard of. Yeah, I think Katrina Balfe should have got the Oscar nomination for Belfast rather than Judi Dench, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. It surprised and pleased me that J.K. Simmons got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Being the Ricardos. I mean, every year I say, you know, this is a performance that should have been recognised, should have been noticed. And in my mind before the Oscar seminary, I was thinking, okay, the, my alternative for Best Supporting Actor would be J.K. Simmons and Being the Ricardos but they went for that more understated performance rather than the flamboyant Bradley Cooper or Jared Leto. So, yeah, I'm really pleased that J.K. Simmons got what I think is a deserved Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for being the Ricardos. The documentary feature category is notoriously difficult to predict, but the fact that The Rescue didn't get an Oscar nomination, the film about the Thai cave rescue by Jimmy Chin and Chai Vasahelye, That surprised me. I mean, personally speaking, I don't think it is a particularly outstanding documentary, but it's high profile, certainly. I mean, it was a National Geographic film directed by former winners in the category. So I fully expected The Rescue to get in the nominations, but it didn't. And that was kind of surprising, as was the fact that Procession missed the cut as well. The Netflix documentary about grown men dealing with their previous sexual abuse at the hands of Catholic priests through drama therapy, through making short films. I mean, it's devastating, but really, really powerful. And yeah, it's pretty heavy going, and I'm a bit disappointed that that didn't make the cut, even though I was kind of expecting it maybe wouldn't. But yeah, the fact that both The Rescue and Procession missed the cut as Best Documentary Feature does, surprise me. And in the Best Animated Feature category, I mean, it's basically as you would expect. I mean, given the compression of the film calendar that we've had due to the pandemic, we've got two Disney films in Encanto and Raya and the Last Dragon, we've got a Pixar film in Luca, have got The Mitchells versus the Machines, which ended up on Netflix, and we've got the random outlier in the animated documentary from Denmark, Flea. I mean, it's basically chalk. I mean, that's exactly how you would have predicted it going. But it's a little disappointing that it's so predictable, particularly when there are films like Belle, which I will be talking about in a minute. And actually, I'm not sure I would have chosen Belle. But you yeah, know, as I said, I'll be getting onto that in a minute. it's depressing just how predictable that particular category was and yeah i mean as i mentioned already drive my car got a nomination for best picture which pleased me but given the way that the nominations laid out i mean belfast didn't get as many nominations as i anticipated it would neither did west side story so I think the odds-on favourites win Best Picture this year is now Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, and she's probably going to win Best Director as well, so we're going to have two female Best Directors in a row, which is awesome. So yeah, I think The Power of the Dog is going to be this year's Juggernaut, and, well, we're just going to have to see when the ceremony is, I think it's in March this year. So, yes, we shall see. But, yeah, I mean, nothing truly surprising, nothing truly shocking, but more. Huh moments than wow moments. But yeah, that was that was my reaction and analysis of this year's Oscar nominations, and we're gonna have to see how that goes. But now let's get back to what you're probably really here for, which is the reviews. Big screen. Bell. Or as it has been somewhat awkwardly titled in some territories apparently, Bell colon. The Dragon and the Freckled Princess, is the latest animated feature from legendary Japanese director Mamoru Hosoda, with Hayao Miyazaki apparently still kind of retired, although last I heard he was actually working on another film, but he's supposed to be retired. But if we take Miyazaki out of the equation, I think Mamoru Hosoda is Japan's most celebrated and most recognized anime director after doing the usual pattern for japanese anime directors working on television for years including doing digimon the movie with his first theatrical feature film the girl who leapt through time he immediately caught everybody's attention and followed that up with a string of highly regarded anime features Summer Wars, Wolf Children, The Boy and the Beast, and his last film Mirai which actually got him a nomination for best animated feature at the Oscars. And there was some anticipation that Bell might get in amongst the nominees for this year's animated feature competition but that didn't happen. As I've said, that particular category went very, very chalk. But nevertheless, Belle is a high-profile release from a high-profile director. And it is loosely inspired by Beauty and the Beast. A shy teenage girl lives in rural Japan on one of the southern islands. She used to be a talented musician and singer, but after her mother's death, she cannot bring herself to sing anymore, and has basically retreated into her shell. She has retreated so far into her shell that she hasn't really noticed that the most handsome boy in her class is quietly looking over her and making sure that she's okay she is stuck in her own grief and self-pity but basically her only friend introduces her to this thing called you now you is a gigantic multimedia virtual reality social media construct kind of thing The idea being that you is a complete virtual world and once you put in these earbuds and put in your photo and whatever, the avatar that you creates for you is, for want of a better term, your soul. It is your inner being. It is what you feel and think about yourself. And everybody does this. Everybody spends time in you. It's a gigantic virtual reality multimedia platform. And when this young girl, Suzu, enters you, she gets turned into this singer, Belle. And in the virtual world where she is what she considers pretty enough, with elaborate costumes and elaborate staging, she instantly becomes a gigantic star in you. And everybody is talking about Belle. Who is Belle? Why does she want to keep her identity a secret? The mystery surrounding who Belle is is part of her mystique, part of her allure. And she becomes gigantically successful on this online platform, despite the fact she's you know a 17-year-old high school girl in Nowheresville, Japan. But as Belle becomes more and more popular, She starts overlapping with another major story which is going on in this U platform where a beast or a dragon, as it is described in the Japanese dub, starts causing chaos. I mean, he starts out in the fighting arenas and has such an impressive win loss record. I mean, the only times he's ever been beaten, he either gave up or got distracted. He's hugely successful in the fighting arena, but he started causing trouble outside the fighting arena and some self-appointed vigilantes are after the Beast and want to expose him, want to kick him out of you, despite the fact it's supposed to be a completely open-source, free environment. And feeling pity and sympathy for this Beast, who in her mind, is being unfairly victimised, Susie starts doing her own investigations and tries to work out who this beast is and can she help this beast. So will this Belle find and comfort and care for this beast and protect him from the viciousness of the online world? And will, in the real world, she finally realise that the hunky boy in class is actually interested in her and has been interested in her for years. A very, very typical setup for an anime. I mean, not all that different from Sing a Bit of Harmony, which I saw last week. But yeah, Belle is quite excellent. The animation style is. A very striking blending of the CG and the 2D style. The online world of you is overwhelming in a visual sense. I mean, it's just so vast and it has so many things in it, so many different avatars, so many different things to do. And the things that you can do online, the, you know, be yourself, feel like yourself, look like yourself, you know, your inner self online. I mean, with this cripplingly shy 17-year-old schoolgirl, suddenly she's a singer. And with this beast being this violent fighter in the arena, what is he going to like when we eventually see him in the real world? I mean, if that is the inner person you are what does the outer person look like i mean it's really interesting exploring a world i mean actually similarly to sing a bit of harmony last week a world which is entirely dominated by this ai construct this you world spending time spending money spending attention in this online world instead of being just a high school girl in southern japan i mean and this is a really really remote part of japan i mean one of the early scenes we see suzu leaving her house and she has to get on a bus journey and there's a sign saying this bus journey will be closing down in the new year because she's the only one using it and then she gets to get on a train and as she gets on the train there's only two people on the train so She lives in the middle of nowhere, basically, and yet hasn't really noticed that this boy who she thinks, oh, we knew each other when we were small, and he pitied me after my mother died, and that's all there is to it, but he's always there, he's always making sure she's okay, even if he doesn't actually say anything. And yeah, of course, he's going to be attracted to you know the the high school president, you know the star saxophonist in the school band, the prettiest, the most vivacious. She's the one who everybody wants, and of course, this boy is going to be after her. And there's misunderstandings along the way. Of course, there are, but I mean, things are not as they seem. And eventually, there's a brilliant scene where there are four people, four of these. High school kids in a room together, and revelation after revelation is made. And it's one of those scenes we've seen hundreds of times before, if not thousands of times before, of somebody finally screwing up the courage and saying, I like you. But everybody in this scene is so awkward and so tongue tied that this scene takes minutes longer than you anticipate it doing. And it is adorable. It's a laugh-out-loud funny scene. I saw this the first opportunity I had in Bath, so it was a pretty full screen at the Odeon Cinema, and that was the one moment where everybody was laughing heartily at the awkwardness and the cuteness of this romantic scene, finally admitting, I've got a crush on you. Oh, shit, I've got a crush on you too. I mean, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, the real-life stuff of... being awkward teenagers in a relatively remote part of japan and the online stuff of being this global superstar of a singer and one of the things that i think is done very very well in this film bell is the representation and the visualization of this online world you and when you first get there it's just a sea of avatars just thousands of people just floating about and you go to different places and do different things but the comments that you achieve i mean people commenting on you they manifest directly in front of you so people commenting and basically being mean being dickheads as the vast majority of people online are they're dickheads they literally start drowning out people i mean if people and noticeably female people start sticking their necks out start making comments start making noise they instantly get drowned out by these little speech bubbles just pelting them and bombarding them and covering them and drowning them out i mean and that is i thought a perfect visual metaphor and a visualization of what happens online particularly to women and then there's all this speculation as to who this famous singer bell actually is and there's all wild conspiracy theories which is actually cultivated by suzu's best friend who's you know a computer geek you know with uh bob haircut and glasses and she's kind of like a pygmalion figure you know i am going to make this shy girl from southern japan the biggest start on you and i know how to do it so this Friend is basically manipulating you to make her friend famous, and she knows how to do it, and she feels power in doing that. And I think that was uh, an interesting aspect. I mean, I, I think that character's actually a little bit dangerous. And thinking about it, she doesn't really have a redemption by the end of the film. So, yeah, that was uh, a complicated character to have as your real life best friend is this somewhat manipulative, somewhat Pygmalian-style figure to manipulate the world and make her friend famous and more confident. And when start things start falling apart, I mean, she actively starts encouraging, no, keep your secret, keep your secret, despite the fact that by this point, revealing her identity, being open, will help you know, the Beast In his struggles, I mean, it gets to some pretty dark places when it reveals what the beast actually is in the real world. And seeing that, and seeing being honest and being open and not being this avatar, not being this pretty thing online, just being human, just being open, that. I think, is a really powerful thing. And doing that herself to encourage another person who needs help, who desperately needs help, to open up themselves, that is powerful stuff. And the scene in which that happens, it's jaw-dropping. It really, really is. There's one particular song which is repeated over and over again. I mean, I personally saw the Japanese version, but apparently there's an English version as well. And she starts singing this song. You know, we we've heard this song and we, we recognize the melody because it's been repeated over and over again. And Suzu, as Bell, in you in the virtual world, has made the decision that she is going to reveal herself, and she starts humming this melody. And thousands of people in this you online world start humming along with her and it's breathtaking it's jaw-dropping i mean it's sort of like a tingly moment very similar to the the much much more cheesy moment where everybody in sing two last week started singing i still haven't found what i'm looking for so here is the song which gets used in bell which i think is actually a very very good song And yeah, that moment where everybody starts singing that melody, humming that melody, is just breathtaking. And the visualisation of everything that happens online is excellent. The visual style, the scale of this film, the heart that it has at the centre of it. I mean, this film does approach some very, very complicated... And necessary statements these are things which needs to be talked about and aren't talked about particularly in animated features at least not in western animated features but yeah it's really really good i think the scale of bell is impressive the style of bell is impressive the story i think is A little bit subpar. I mean, the real life interactions of Susan and her classmates are very, very typical. And the linking of this story to the Beauty and the Beast story, I think, is a little bit thin, even though there is one particular scene which deliberately and specifically is evoking the ballroom scene, the dancing scene in the 1992 Disney Beauty and the Beast. It's not a mistake that that's a scene which happens in a ballroom and it seems to me to be shot in exactly the same room it's been quite a while since I've seen the animated Beauty and the Beast from Disney, but that is a scene which I think is deliberately and provocatively evoking the Disney Beauty and the Beast, the animated version. So it is there, but I don't think it's there enough. So, yeah, I think... On a visual terms, on animation terms, it's excellent. On story terms, maybe a little flap. So for me, I do recommend Bell. I strongly recommend Bell. But for me, it's only a very, very high meh. Home Movies. A Hero is the latest film from legendary Iranian director Asghar Fahadi which rather surprisingly has ended up being released onto Amazon Prime Video. Asghar Fahadi has directed two films which have ended up winning the foreign language film Oscar, as it still was then, A Separation and The Salesman. He's also won Gold and Silver Bears at the Berlin Film Festival. This film, A Hero, who's won the Grand Prix at Cannes, and Asgolf Hardy personally got nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars for A Separation. He really is one of world cinema's great directors. And it was just assumed, or at least... I assumed, and I think a lot of people assumed, that his nomination for International Film Oscar this year was just going to be rubber-stamped, but he didn't make the cut, which was, I think personally, the biggest surprise of these Oscar nominations, but surprises like that do happen. This latest film, A Hero, stars Amir Jadidi as a man who is in jail for debt. He borrowed money to start a business, and his guarantor was his then brother in law. And when his business partner ran off with the money, his brother in law had to pay off the debt. Upset by this, and upset by the fact that Amir Jadidi split from his wife. The guarantor demanded the money back, which he cannot pay, and therefore Amir Jadidi has been in jail for several years. But he has a plan, he has a scheme. He thinks he has found a way to pay off some of the debt, and if he can persuade his ex brother in law, Motion Tanabande, to accept this partial repayment of the debt, maybe he can get out of jail and maybe he can connect with the woman he intends to marry, played by Sahar Goldust. So he manages to arrange for himself a two-day pass out of jail where all of this is hopefully going to be sorted out. But things start getting complicated when the origin of this money he is possibly going to pay off part of his debt with comes into question. Unexpectedly he becomes locally famous and therefore people start really questioning what is going on where this money came from and what exactly is his relationship with this unmarried woman Sahar Goldust. So can Amir Jadidi figure out what he's going to do with this money? Can he mollify his very angry creditor, Motion Tanabande? And can he reunite with his son, Saleh Karamai, who has a severe stammer? And will he manage to get his life back together? Asghar Fahadi tends to make films about the moral grey areas, the situations where there really is no easy answers. To this day, I think the script of A Separation is one of the most intricate, dense, complicated, emotionally films I've ever seen. I mean, there are no good answers and no easy solutions in A Separation. Everybody is trying to do the right thing and just making everybody else miserable in that film. And it's really, really complicated, really dense, and really, really well done. And that tends to be what Asghar Fahadi is so good at, the moral grey areas, the quandaries, the quagmires that he is in, or he creates. And A Hero has a lot of that, But personally speaking, I think the focus of this latest film, A Hero, is a little bit different. I think the primary focus of this particular film is the way that, for some people in some situations, honour and dignity matters more than truth or personal gain. How people perceive you, what people think of you, is much more important than any notion of truth or justice. And those kinds of questions get all the more complicated when suddenly you are a local celebrity. People recognise you and people are praising you for something you didn't necessarily do, or at least not do correctly. So the idea of being famous and the idea of being in the spotlight becomes appealing and that makes everything all the more complicated and when you have this plot line where the intersection of money and justice and the legal system and personal relationships get all blended into the mix what does that do as well it makes it all the more twisted emotionally The thing is that the creditor, Motion Tanabande, isn't being all that unreasonable. He guaranteed this debt with a lot of money. I mean, the conversion rate makes it roughly £3,000, according to the quick online conversion I did. So, this not particularly wealthy man is down £3,000. His daughter who is actually played by Asghar Fahadi's daughter, Serena Fahadi, but his daughter no longer has a dowry. And his sister, Mo sister, has also been dumped by Amir Jadidi. And as throughout the course of the film, it becomes more and more apparent that something is going on between Amir Jadidi and this random woman, Sahar Goldust. Why should I forgive some of this debt so you can just go off with this other woman and you know it's not all that unreasonable i mean yes he's being a little bit too much of a dick about it but it's not particularly unreasonable but at the same time i think one of the major motivations for motion tanabande is petty vindictiveness and that is somewhat valid as well so Yeah, I mean, this idea of personal life, personal relationships and finance and truth and justice, all of them having slightly different things, pulling you in slightly different directions. It creates some really complicated situations. And eventually, Amir Jadidi makes a decision which is very, very questionable. I mean, most of the decisions that... A major DD makes. I mean, basically, all of the decisions that a major DD makes are reasonable, they're understandable. It's just a series of believable and understandable events, which end up that it looks like a major DD is a scheming con man. And he just cannot abide the idea that anybody thinks he's less than honest, particularly now he's this local celebrity. So he makes a decision, and the cover-up is always worse than the crime. And that sends off an entirely different line of dominoes falling. And everybody has their, their own agendas, and everybody's... Influence on this situation is fascinating. Amir Jadidi has his agenda, his potential fiance, Sahar Goldust, has her agenda, the prison authorities have their agenda, I mean, because they get involved in this very, very quickly. Motion Tanabande, the creditor, has his agenda. To some degree, Motion Tanabande's daughter Serena Fahadi has her own agenda as well. So. There's all different directions that this gets pulled in, and it becomes really complicated and really fascinating. And I do like the way that even though Asghar Fahadi is a filmmaker who is working within the Iranian system and the restrictive censorship of the Iranian authorities, unlike Filmmakers who have fallen afoul of the Iranian authorities like Jafar Panahi, Mohammad Rasulov, and the poet and documentarian Baktash Abtin, who died of Covid whilst imprisoned by the Iranian security services. Asghar Fahadi works within the Iranian system, and yet still manages to make very pertinent, very salient points. Like Sahar Goldust, even though she's 37 years old, cannot get permission to marry the man she loves without the approval of her brother, who is the head of her household. The fact that Amir Jadidi is in prison solely for debt is also very pertinent, and part of the reason why the prison authorities want to get involved is they want some good publicity because. Another prisoner who was in prison for debt and spent six years in prison for debt recently committed suicide. So they want a feel good story to distract from that. The very fact that in Iran you can still be sent to prison for debt, solely for debt. I mean, that hasn't really happened in the UK since the 1869 Debtors Act. And being imprisoned solely for debt is against not one, but two UN declarations of human rights. So, I think Asghar Fahadi, in small and subtle ways, is making political points, but making them in a way which can get past the Iranian authorities. And yeah, I think this is, in general, a good film. I mean, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I don't think this is one of Asghar Fahadi's best, but... Asghar Fahadi is such a stellar filmmaker that a mildly subpar film from Asghar Fahadi is still so much better than basically any other filmmaker out there. I mean, I honestly have not seen enough of the international film Oscar contenders this year to make full judgment, but I think I would probably include a hero in my list of nominees. Because he has made a film about honour, responsibility, humiliation, family obligation, pride, and fame, and celebrity. So, yeah, he's made a really fascinating film. And while that is interesting, I don't think it's quite as interesting as what Asghar Fahadi often provides us, which is these intricate, dense, moral questions. I mean, the morality of this whole thing is not quite to the forefront as in many of Hardy's films. I think this is just a series of unfortunate and somewhat unlikely events which end up with this one man making bad decisions or being tempted to make bad decisions. So I don't think it's quite up to the usual standards of Asghar Fahadi, but that's still very, very good. And for me, A Hero, available on Amazon Prime Video, is a very, very high MA. Also released onto Amazon Prime Video is another mildly oscar based film that became a potentially serious Oscar contender when Ben Affleck got nominated for a SAG Award for Best Supporting Actor, The Tender Bar. Directed by George Clooney and based on the memoir by J.R. Moringa, this is the story of a young boy, J.R., initially played by Daniel Ranieri, who moves with his mother, Lily Rabe, into the rumbunctious home of his grandfather, Christopher Lloyd, on Long Island. Lily Rabe's husband just walked out on them when young J.R. was very, very young. And Lily Ray basically has nowhere else to go. And she sees it as a humiliation that she has to move into her father's house on Long Island. But Danielle Ranieri actually kind of loves it because it's a large house with lots of family around there, lots of cousins. Danielle Ranieri's aunt also is living in this house with her gaggle of kids. And... I think it's a lovely touch that Daniel Ranieri's aunt is played by Danielle Ranieri, his mother. I mean, she's going to be on set anyway. You may as well give her a small role. I mean, I'm not sure that aunt actually has any lines of dialogue, or if she does, then not very much. But yeah, Danielle Ranieri is actually a teacher, but she's in this film anyway. But anyway, Daniel Ranieri is growing up in this large house on Long Island, and his only true father figure is his Uncle Charlie, played by Ben Affleck, who runs a nearby bar. So young Daniel Ranieri grows up and learns life lessons from his Uncle Charlie and tries to deal with his almost entirely absent father and tries to live his life until eventually growing up to be Ty Sheridan. And from a very, very early age, His mother, Lily Rabe, has insisted that you, you're smart, so you are going to go to Yale Law School. That is the only option for you. You have to go to Yale Law School. And Ty Sheridan actually gets into Yale and has to deal with his family's expectations, his working-class background, and his very, very complicated relationship with his first love, Brianna Middleton who comes from a much higher socioeconomic bracket. So Jr has to deal with Yale and has to deal with his large rambunctious family and the expectations of his family and his personal expectations of becoming a writer and all the time spending time with his Uncle Charlie in this bar on Long Island. So, this kind of memoir has become rather popular, and adaptations of this kind of memoir have become rather popular. I mean, only last year we had Hillbilly Elegy, which is a not dissimilar story. And I think I can say about The Tender Bar almost exactly the same as I can say about Hillbilly Elegy. I mean, it's an interesting enough story, I guess, but do we really need to see it? I mean, I don't know if this is just my personal taste or if this is a truism of Hollywood or media at large, but I just don't feel the need to explore this kind of story all too deeply. I mean, yes, it's good that he you know, dealt with his father issues and had this one positive male role model in his life. Arguably, too, with Christopher Lloyd, but he's playing it off a bit more eccentric. I mean, that's what Christopher Lloyd does. But having Ben Affleck as this father figure, and from an early age giving advice on masculine responsibility and what being a man means, that is equal parts sleazy and sensible. It has something to it. So I it mean, has kind of a philosophy of life, I guess. But still, ultimately, this is a film about somebody else's daddy issues. And I mean, the literalization of the absent father is very pronounced in this film. I mean, this is, I'm assuming, the truth, but young Daniel Ranieri's father is a radio DJ, Max Martini, who is only ever referred to as the voice. mean that's his radio dj persona so he is only ever the voice and there's early scenes where young daniel ranieri who's actually very good in the film starts talking back to the radio and whenever the voice comes on on the radio it immediately gets turned off i mean actually there's an early scene where daniel ranieri's aunt played by his mother when the voice comes on the radio, she just pushes the radio off the shelf and breaks the radio. So the literalisation that the boy's father is only ever the voice, I think is, is very pointed. And there's kind of a heartfelt scene where the middle school teacher is organising a father son breakfast you know, to get to know all your classmates and all your classmates' parents. And the only kid who doesn't have a father in a 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s classroom, the only person who doesn't have a father is Daniel Ranieri, and that I don't buy for a second. But yeah, I mean, the absence of the father and the substitution of the father figure with this somewhat inappropriate father figure in Ben Affleck Is the cornerstone of this film. Although, having said that, I think Ben Affleck actually creates a really interesting character. And I do think this is the best role I've seen from Ben Affleck for quite some time. I mean, his role in The Last Duel was very good, but reasonably small. But here in The Tender Bar, he is a mixture of mildly sleazy bartender, but he's actually rather clever. He's a self-taught polymath. His bar is called The Dickens, so one of the pieces of decor in this bar is loads and loads of books, and he's actually read all the books, and he encourages young Daniel Ranieri to read all these books. And that sparks his interest in becoming a writer, and no doubt helps him when he eventually gets to Yale. So he's a mixture of mildly sleazy bartender, cunning wide boy, and mildly intellectual philosopher. And all of it is pulled off brilliantly by Ben Affleck. So yeah, I do understand why he got that SAG nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I don't think I would have given him one. I think he would probably narrowly miss the cut for me personally. But, yeah, it's a situation where, yes, it's fine, it's fascinating, but do we need to see this story as an audience at large? And I don't think we really do, particularly when there are moments in this film which really, really come across like the wonder years. Throughout the film, there is a voiceover from an omniscient future narrator, I mean, the adult JR, voiced by Ron Livingston, presumably reading extracts from the actual memoir. But the way it comes across with this adult voice looking back on his past and the score being twinkly and sentimental And heartfelt i mean it really really comes across like the wonder years in a lot of situations and that's just not something that i ever thought i would hear again i mean it's it's overly sentimental it's basically a bullet point coming of age story all the things that you anticipate happening to this kid growing up because We know he eventually wrote the book, so we assume he ended up at Yale. And it just ends up being a pretty by-the-numbers coming-of-age story. So yeah, I'm really not sure what attracted director George Clooney or star Ben Affleck to this particular project. I'm not exactly sure why it got made. I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's actually surprisingly well acted. I do think that. I mean, Ty Sheridan has long been an actor I've been an admirer of, and he's very good in this. Ben Affleck is very, very good in this. And yeah, I mean, the acting is good, but it's a very, very basic, very generic coming of age story. So do we need to see it? In my personal opinion, no, but it's competent enough that I can't dismiss it. So for me, The Tender Bar, also available on Amazon Prime Video, is a solid, unspectacular. Meh. Netflix and chill. Brazen is a tawdry erotic thriller released onto Netflix, directed by Monica Mitchell, who has spent most of her career doing Hallmark-esque TV movies one of which I actually recognise, The Night Before Christmas, K-N-I-G-H-T, a Netflix Christmas movie from a couple of years ago starring Vanessa Hudgens. But this one has been made for Netflix, based on a novel by the successful romance novelist Nora Roberts. Now this is absolutely not my area of expertise, but apparently Nora Roberts is incredibly successful and incredibly prolific in the world of romance novels, to the extent that the Hallmark Channel actually has a series of films. Nora Roberts, blank. You know, she is a brand name, in fact, listed on the website or you know, the laptop app I use to watch Netflix on The listings, this is now Nora Roberts' brazen, but the credits on the actual film are just brazen. So, yes, this is a romance novelist making a somewhat tawdry, erotic thriller. Starring Alyssa Milano, which is interesting. Of all the people in Hollywood to involve themselves in something this... Sleazy. I wouldn't have picked out Alissa Milano, at least not recently. I mean, yes, there have been periods of Alyssa Milano's career where she has gone down this route, but nowadays she's the woman who kickstarted the Me Too campaign in 2017. She has been on multiple protest marches, publicly been on multiple protest marches, even getting arrested in a couple of cases. She's even considering running for Congress in 2024. She now lives in a semi-rural county just outside Los Angeles proper, where apparently the congressman is a right-wing nasty bigot. So she is considering running for Congress. And yet she is appearing in this sleazy erotic thriller. So, hey, if she's comfortable with it and she's making money, Fair place where I say. But anyway, Alyssa Milano is a decent enough actress. And I mean, even, well, she must be over 40 by now, but she's still hot, let's face it. So, yeah, she's in this erotic thriller as a romance novelist, a thriller novelist, who out of the blue gets a phone call from her estranged sister, Emily Ullerup, who she hasn't actually seen for about five years because she's an ex-pill addict and really hadn't got her shit together. So, Alyssa Milano hasn't seen her for five years, but now she has got herself clean, got herself a respectable job as an English teacher, and now is the time to try and get full custody of her son back. Her son, who's about six years old and is currently living with her obnoxious ex-husband. And in order to get things in motion, Alyssa Milano needs to sign some papers on some property that they own together. So Emily Ullerup calls up her famous sister. Her famous sister goes home to Washington, D.C. and instantly starts flirting with the handsome police detective next door, played by Sam Page, and supporting her sister trying to get her son back. But the second night that Elisa Milano is home in Washington, D.C., her sister gets brutally murdered. And it is revealed that Emily Ullerup was subsidising her income by working as a dominatrix cam girl. So does that have anything to do with why she was murdered, or is her... Obnoxious ex husband, really evil enough that he would actually kill his ex wife. And then other cam girl dominatrices start dying as well. So, can this case be solved? Can Alyssa Milano solve her sister's murder? And can she make goo goo eyes at the hunky cop next door who just so happens to be assigned to this case? Who can tell? When I'm watching a film, particularly when I'm watching a film at home, on my computer, on my TV, on Netflix, I'm always making notes. I'm making notes of all the observations or the comments I want to make about a particular film as I'm watching it. Basically, all the notes I made about this film, Brazen, are the ludicrous mistakes in police procedure that this film goes through. It is just so blatantly stupid that anything in this film would be allowed to happen. After the body of her sister has been found, Alyssa Milano is allowed to stay in the house of this cop Sam Page She's had one date on, I mean, during which her sister was murdered. So there's some complicated psychological stuff going on there. But she insists on staying with the cop who is investigating her sister's case. And even after this personal relationship has been established, I mean, these people live next door to each other, which is a remarkably convenient coincidence. But Sam Page is still allowed to be the investigating officer of this case. Eventually Alyssa Milano gets the blessing of the captain of Sam Page to be an active participant in her sister's murder investigation. There's a scene where a father is allowed to stay in the same room as his son who is being questioned and it's the father who provides the son with the alibi and that just does not happen. And eventually there's kind of a honey trap set up where Alyssa Milano goes on this website as a webcam dominatrix, trying to lure the killer out. And that just would not happen. And even if it did, would the killer be stupid enough to go to the same house that he's already killed somebody in simply to kill the new Desiree, the, the new dominatrix who is... Doing that gimmick. At every point, there's just no regard at all for police procedure. It's just really, really lazy writing to allow for Alyssa Milano and Sam Page to have this smoulderingly intense relationship with each other. Ooh, he's hot, ooh, she's hotter And you know, right from the first meeting, you can see, ooh, sexual tension, a go-go. And Yeah, okay, fine. I can buy the coincidence that a cop happens to live next door and he's an excellent cop. I mean, but there's also some really, really lazy writing. The first scene we are introduced to Sam Page, he stops a convenience store robbery. He just happens to be buying coffee for him and his partner, and a guy walks in with a gun, and of course, he arrests the guy. And this is how we are introduced to Sam Page. It's just really, really lazy writing. I mean, time and again, there's expositionary dialogue, the type of lazy writing where both people in the scene know the information they are saying, but they need to say it to each other because we as an audience need to know it. I mean, it's just very, very perfunctory, very simple, blunt dialogue. I mean, yes, occasionally that kind of thing does work. Like the first thing that Alyssa Milano does when she meets this hunky next door neighbor son page, is she Googles him and says, Oh, you're a police detective. You've just solved the cold case. Here's the news report. I mean, okay, that is kind of lazy, but it is also something that actually might happen. So I'm going to give them a pass on that particular one. But this film also has one of the weirdest Chekhov's guns I have ever, ever seen. In this case, it is a literal gun. And we see in one of the early scenes that Emily Ullerup has this gun, and you know, just before she starts the session, she makes sure it's loaded. But she's a cam girl. The whole point is this is a remote interaction. This is not an in-person reaction. Why does she need a loaded gun when she's going on a webcam? And of course, later in the film, this loaded gun becomes relevant. So, yeah, even really basic stuff, which didn't need to happen, gets brought up in this film, and it just doesn't work in the slightest. A witness comes forward, and one of the things that the witness says is that the perpetrator was about six foot tall. And this means that they immediately go round to one of Emily Ulrup's English students at this prestigious school, played by Daniel Dima. Uh, Daniel Deemer, who was excellent in The Half of It a couple of years ago, the really excellent queer Cyrano de Bergerac story. Oh, and there's you know, a new Cyrano coming out. But anyway, Daniel Deemer, good actor in The Half of It, and he's in this as well, but Daniel Dima is a full six-foot-three and towers over everybody in this cast, so when part of the descriptor is he's six-foot and they go around and arrest Daniel Dima, that's just bad police work. I, it's just so, so silly. And it, it seems basically set up that Alyssa Milano acts as this honey trap at the end, act, you know, getting up in you know fetish gear in a tight PVC pencil skirt, and, and it's actually a plot point that she expects somebody to come around and confront her. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, even after all the police have wrapped up and said okay we know who it is we're going to go off and rest and we're just going to shut down all the cameras now but she apparently knows that this guy is going to come to her and by the way when the person who ends up being is the person who early in the film has been very very jittery and his very first interaction with Alyssa Milano is hey do you know that the Janitor at, at the school was acting really creepy and had an argument, so maybe you should go and look at him for a while. I mean, when your first reaction, the first time you talk to somebody is to put somebody else in the frame, that's a red flag, and being very, very jittery throughout the entire course of the film, I thought, oh, he's so jittery he must be a red herring, but nope, he's the guy. But anyway, Alyssa Milano apparently expects this guy to be, you know, confronting her at a certain point. And yet, when there 's every chance that this guy will come into this small room, you know this dungeon for want of a better term that Alyssa Milano is in, and she 's still wearing the vinyl pencil skirt, and her movements are severely restricted that just doesn 't make sense I mean if you anticipate somebody coming around and confronting you, even if you don 't want to you know get into sweats or anything at least get into a less tight skirt, if you want to be able to run away from your attacker, wearing a vinyl pencil skirt is not the best move. I mean, that was just silly. But I think that's basically the purpose of this film is to allow Alyssa Milano to have a, a montage of her acting as an online dominatrix, so she's trying to lure out this killer. And there is something earlier in the film of Alyssa Milano's character saying. I do write about women getting murdered, but it's all about the psychology of the people who would do this and confronting the patriarchy and making a stand for women. And I'm sure that's what Alyssa Milano, the actress, was intrigued by, and maybe even what Nora Roberts, the original author, was trying to say. But that is completely overwhelmed by just how sleazy this is and just how cheap and tawdry. It's it's a, a B movie. I mean the police procedures that go on in this film are just so, so ludicrous, it makes no sense. And it is there solely for titillation and romance. I mean, alright, oh, I admit that the sexual chemistry between Sam Page and Alyssa Milano is pretty good. I mean, you buy the fact that you know they very nearly fall into bed together after just one date and even after this horrible thing has happened, Alyssa Milano would want to seek comfort in this hunky next door neighbour. But when that is the goal and the purpose of the film and not having a proper investigation of a serial killer or a true psychology of a serial killer, I mean it is just tawdry. I mean, that's what it is. So yeah, it's cheap, it's kind of tacky. It's decently well acted. I don't regret watching it. It is just ludicrous. It's utterly utterly ludicrous. And on those very low terms, I think Brazen is an okay film. I mean, it's a insubstantial meh. And that's the best I can say about Brazen on Netflix. Coming attractions after a light week at the cinema this week, next week it's going to be very, very busy. Finally, we have Kenneth Branner's new version of Death on the Nile released after over two years waiting for it. This does mean that at the three cinemas within the city limits of Bath, all three of them are simultaneously playing two Kenneth Branagh films, Belfast and Death on the Nile. In fact, in the Little Theatre, they are literally playing two Kenneth Branagh films on their two screens at the same time this Friday. So, yeah, but I'm really pleased that Death on the Nile is finally released. I did like Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orange Express. I personally still prefer the Albert Finney version, but... It was a good adaptation and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie and all types of murder mysteries. So yes, I have been looking forward to that for a very, very long time. Also out at the cinema this week is Uncharted, the latest attempt to actually get a decent movie out of a video game. I am not a gamer, I never really have been, but from everything I know and you have absorbed through osmosis uncharted seems like the best option to make a decent film since it's basically a rip-off of indiana jones anyway so why not just make that into a film and yeah having tom holland and mark Wahlberg in it i mean it's a little bit disappointing that you know the actual model for the video game character nathan fillion isn't doing it but He's probably too old now, which is unfortunate, but anyway, I do love Nathan Fillion, but yeah, Tom Hollander's an excellent actor, and I am going to be checking out Uncharted. And getting ready for Valentine's Day, the other big cinematic release this week is Marry Me, starring Jennifer Lopez as an international pop sensation who is at a gig-slash-wedding where she will marry her fiancé, played by the Latin music star Maluma, in front of a big arena crowd. But just as she is preparing to marry her fiancé, it is revealed that he's been cheating on her. So, heartbroken and devastated, she looks out in the crowd and sees Owen Wilson holding up a sign saying, Marry me. Now, Owen Wilson is only there to support his daughter. He just got handed the sign by a random stranger, so he has no idea who this person is, I mean, other than, you know, she's famous and his daughter loves her. So he, you know, sympathetically says, "Okay, I will marry you. So in front of millions of people watching around the world and thousands of people in this arena, Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez, he, a geeky... Teacher, she an international pop superstar, get married. And oh, this is just going to be a major convenience, we'll just do it for the publicity, won't we? We don't we won't actually fall in love with each other at all, will we? Of course we won't. This isn't a romantic comedy that's being released on Valentine's Day at all. Yeah, but it still seems like a decent enough idea. So yeah, I do want to check out Marry Me. And continuing the Valentine's Day theme. On Valentine's Day itself, there are preview screenings of the new film Cyrano. It's a musical with original songs by the band The National, who I'm a big, big fan of, and starring Peter Dinklage as Cyrano, a person who hides away and writes beautiful letters so that his friend can seduce the girl he loves which has mean, been done so many times the half of it which I mentioned a bit earlier Roxanne the Steve Martin film from ages ago and of course the Jean Depardieu version in well, late 80s early 90s that was I mean of course in the traditional play he's got a big nose but in this case Cyrano is a dwarf played by Peter Dinklage and yeah a musical of Cyrano with songs by The National that sounds intriguing, and it was a, a considered an um, Oscar contender. I mean, it's directed by Joe Wright, who's done this kind of thing in the past. And Peter Dinklage was a decent shout for Best Actor. But as it turns out, the only actual Oscar nomination that Cyrano got was for Costume Design, period piece. So, yeah, of course it was going to get a Costume Design nomination. But, yeah, I do want to check out Cyrano. I mean, it's officially out on the 25th of February, but. Seeing it as early as possible and getting all the films I need to watch for my Oscar considerations out of the way so I can start recording my Oscar deliberations as early as possible. I am going to be checking out that preview of Cyrano, even though I probably won't be releasing the actual review of Cyrano at the time, but I will no doubt give you a hint as to what I feel about it. But yeah, a lot of cinematic trips this week, and yet another romantic question mark film being released this weekend is a film being released onto amazon prime called i want you back which stars the awesome jenny slate and for me personally the occasionally funny charlie day as people who get dumped and their partners go off with other people they meet up and commiserate with each other and say, yeah, we will be our support structure getting through this breakup. And then the idea comes up, well, why don't we just break up our partner's new relationship so we can get back into their good graces? That's a good idea, isn't it? And yeah, kind of an anti-romantic comedy, I guess. And yeah, I love, love, love Jenny Slate. So anything that's got her in it, I'm there for. And yeah, I Want You Back sounds intriguing, so I do want to check that out on Amazon Prime Video. On Netflix this week, there is actually the first time in a long time I am genuinely excited about something that's coming up on Netflix. Over recent years, it has become increasingly common for very famous, very big-name directors to accept the Netflix dollar and make films for Netflix. Martin Scorsese, Steven Soderbergh, Bong Joon-ho before he made Parasite, Alfonso Cuaron, Spike Lee and Noah Baumbach, amongst many others. But the latest big name director to accept the Netflix dollar is Jean-Pierre Jeunet the director of Delicatessen, of Amélie, of the City of Lost Children, a true visionary of European cinema, who hasn't made a film in quite some time, or at least not one that got widely distributed. But Jean-Pierre Jeunet has made a film for Netflix. And judging by the trailer, he's right back to his visually inventive best. It's called Big Bug, and is set in a hyper-stylized future world, which looks more like the Jetsons than anything, where basically everything is done by AIs. And then the AIs start rebelling, and a group of humans is trapped inside a house together by the well-meaning AIs, who don't want their masters to be killed by the rampaging AIs, so a bunch of people stuck in a house with an AI rebellion going on just outside, with the wild, colourful visual invention of Jean-Pierre Genet going on outside, and that sounds awesome. So I am desperate to see Big Bug by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. I am really, really looking forward to that one. There's also a couple of other foreign language films released onto Netflix, which I'm not quite so enthusiastic about, but there's... A German supernatural thriller called The Privilege set in a high-priced private school and mysterious things start happening, so a group of teenagers have to figure out what's going on and survive the night. Could be just a cheesy horror, but it looks intriguing enough, so that has been added to the list. As has a Korean film called Love and Leashes about a young man who works in an office in Korea and is basically the only male presence on his particular floor and is somewhat fawned over by his female colleagues. But one day, one of his female colleagues accidentally opens a parcel that was meant for him and realises that this young man is into BDSM. So, these two co-workers start a BDSM relationship. And there are many, many different ways that that kind of scenario could go, and I'm intrigued to see which one it is. I mean, a couple of years ago, the Finnish film, Dogs Don't Wear Pants, I think was a brilliant portrayal of a BDSM relationship. We've had bad ones like the Fifty Shades movies. Not that I've ever seen them, but I don't want to, having read the books or at least glossed over them. Of course, back in the day, we had Secretary as well. I mean, I'm really intrigued that even a relatively conservative country like Korea is approaching this kind of subject matter now. So, yeah, I'm intrigued to see what type of movie Love and Leashes is and how sensitive it is in its portrayal of BDSM. But regardless, that is on the list, as is an anime feature released onto Netflix this week called Child of Kamiari Month about a young girl whose parents die and it is suddenly revealed that she is you know, the chosen one and she has to travel halfway across the country for supernatural reasons. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it looks kind of fun. I mean, I'm enough of a fan of anime that that has been added to the list, although it probably won't be a desperate priority for me to watch Child of Kamuyari Month, but it is on the list as is the previous films I've been talking about on Netflix, like the Brazilian comedy Lully, the Taiwanese Oscar submission The Falls, and the creepy stop-motion animated anthology film The House. All of those are still on my Netflix list. And on streaming platforms, I do still want to check out the home invasion thriller C for me. And I've also decided that... One final film from last year that I do actually actively want to check out is the animated feature Chuck Steele Night of the Trampires. Because A, I think it's the type of tiny independent British film which needs support. And B, I think there's a non zero chance that it will end up as one of my best animated features of last year. So. Now that it is available widely on streaming, I do want to check out the animated feature Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires. And I still am actively seeking the mildly Oscar-baity films Nine Days and The Humans on streaming platforms as well. So that is a list of everything that... I've got planned. I'm still working on my end of year shows, which this year I've decided will be in a different format. I also have my super secret side project, which I actually haven't worked on for a couple of weeks because I have been working on my end of year shows. And sooner or later, I will also have to do my Oscar preview as well, particularly now the Oscar nominations are awesome. Looking at my little spreadsheet. I don't actually have a great deal left to do for that, not a great deal of films I need to catch up on. So yeah, that will actually probably be coming sooner rather than later, as soon as I get all the other stuff out of the way. I mean, I've got so much stuff to do, but hopefully it will be entertaining for you, my loyal listeners. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Ye Nay or Mah, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure.